Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast that's lasted longer than three Prime Ministers. With me, trying to steady the ship after the excesses of previous podcasts, it's Luke John Davis. Good afternoon, everyone. Returning triumphantly from the jungle, it's Councillor John Cotton. Hello. Shaking your head at the machinations of incompetent men, it's Jennifer Hemingway. Hello. And recording videos on social media with an elf on the shelf, it's my partner of propaganda, Steve Haynes. Why do I get the elf on the shelf? Our mission is to look back on British politics in 2022 and what a year it's been. Last year, when we did this review, the theme was, is Britain a failed state? I feel we're maybe slightly ahead of the curve <laughs> on that, given that nothing seems to work anymore. But what we're going to talk about then is, as the Tory party goes into its 13th year of government, is the lesson they've taken is that true conservatism hasn't been tried. In our Movers and Shakers podcast, was talking about the state that Boris Johnson. Do you remember Boris Johnson, Steve? I do remember Boris Johnson. Had left the Tory party in. Do you want to talk a little bit about the leadership of Boris Johnson? Well, where does one start? Do you want to start with the crimes and then kind of work narrow it, down? It, it, the... It's been an extraordinary, extraordinary period uh, that doesn't reflect well uh, either on the nation or particularly on the Conservative Party that have allowed this to happen. Uh, this is a what was once the most successful political party in the Western world has allowed uh, a charlatan and a fraudster uh, essentially to preside over a government for the period that he did. And it ended in the inevitable way that it was always going to. But I think the speed with which it unravelled this year was, was quite extraordinary all the same. Well, yeah, because it was only about a year ago that the Partygate revelations had started. And it was only a few months before that, Tim Shipman. Was that, I think that was the Tim Shipman, Boris Johnson squats like a big toad over British politics. <laughs> the legacy that Johnson has now left for the, the Conservative Party, which was you know, once an incredibly successful governing force, whether you agreed with its political philosophy or not, um, it, it's extraordinary what, what it's done to, to what was once uh, such a credible force. We, we now have a situation where its moderate wing has essentially been purged. Um, not just from the, the party membership, but particularly from the parliamentary party, and much of which happened before the, the 2019 general election. Uh, and then we've had the, the kind of farcical... Uh, That's the sound of the purging. As we speak. I Can remember you... my point. <laughs> That was the sound of it landing. <laughs> Is that the Matt Hancock app? <laughs> <laughs> what did he take me for? Boris Johnson's current political ideology was actually alien to the Conservative Party. I mean, he's, he's changed political ideology about as often as he's changed wives. But um, the, the kind of big state nationalism was never a thing that the Conservative Party had had as part of its DNA up until the influx from UKIP. And that was always an uncomfortable marriage of convenience that was kept when he was able to deliver an 80-seat majority. And I think the defenestration and, and how quickly that happened is actually also something to do with the fact that his ideology, for want of a better phrase, was, was an external one imported into the Conservative Party and not 
something that a large number of the senior Conservatives were uh, invested in. And one that he had no way of delivering, because if you are going to run on that big state nationalist ticket, you don't make Rishi Sunak your Chancellor, because yeah. he's not going to spend money. You don't make Sajid Javid, former Chancellor of the Exchequer, or to give him his proper title, the Saj, your Chancellor, because he's also a fat shot, he's not going to spend money. But I don't think he had a, a, a viable candidate to be a Chancellor who, who was going to follow that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're, you're you're right in that there was certainly going to be difficulty in kind of delivering any of of, of that more kind of gaullist um, vision that, uh, that 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 Johnson at least claims to have. But the sheer size of the 2019 victory probably would have meant that he probably would have been able to get something through if he had been competent. Mm. But because he himself was incompetent, because he himself is so totally unsuited let alone to, to govern but just like manage anything like this is somebody I would not trust managing like even basic like uh, you, you know tasks in any in, in any business um, and we've seen from his career that when you leave him to his own devices he does not do things properly he lies and he gets himself fired for it multiple times that's happened but because of his just base personality any hope that the Conservatives had that they could potentially deliver on something like that you like it went away. I reckon even with someone like um, the Saj or Sunak in in place, Johnson would have had the political capital to kind of just bully that through. Mm. Especially if it became the thing of no, this is the thing we're doing. Everything else to a degree doesn't matter. This is what we're doing. But he didn't care enough to do that. He wasn't competent enough to do that, and that ultimately is the issue. I think he also has a very much. Um he likes big shiny things, you know. You had the Boris Airport, you had the Boris Bridge, you've had HS2. But he, he likes these big shiny infrastructure projects. But he's not a details man. Um, you know, he he's never been one who actually grasped what levelling up meant beyond a sense of expressing grievance between the north and south, or the Midlands and the south of England. Um, and beyond saying, you know, I recognise that you have a grievance, which is politically powerful when it's not been recognised before, he didn't actually have a plan of how to put that into action, even before the pandemic came along and kind of sucked all the oxygen out of the room. But I think partly because of the pandemic, but also partly because of the, the fractured nature of the Conservatives and the fact they can't agree on what conservatism actually is, what has he actually done with an 80 seat majority? You know, we voted to leave the EU with a deal that's proven to be a fallacy that even he says doesn't work, even though it's his deal that he negotiated. And what else has he? What else has the Conservatives actually achieved in the last few years? You're saying incompetence. I'm, I'm actually wondering if it's less that and more the fact that he doesn't actually have any ideology that he is married to to put forward if he doesn't actually have anything that he wants to achieve other than let's make it shiny and pretty and in opposition to something else then how can you achieve it that's why i wonder if actually is the departure of dominic cummings which was a big turning point probably in the johnson government because it felt like cummings was the person who gave johnson the strategy to win the election and cummings has an ideology for governing that johnson doesn't really have and then Cummings' departure, which again was probably about this time last year, wasn't it? I think after yeah, around Christmas. Yeah, and and since then, it's just been completely directionless. And so I suppose you have the leadership le- election then to follow Johnson, 
and the Tories decide, well, actually, we, we could do with someone with a very clear ideological position, and so therefore vote for Liz Truss, because she has the clearest ideology, which is essentially to drive straight into the rocks and essentially put Adam Smith Institute pamphlets into practice. How did that go, Steve? It went swimmingly. Did it? That's uh, good. I mean, and, and I haven't checked my mortgage we, in we, a and couple be, of months. Yeah, so. I mean, we, swimmingly because the ship has sunk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I just feel, to be fair, it wasn't Adam Smith stuff that she was putting into place. It was the IEA. The Adam Smith uh, Institute actually were coming out against a number of the, 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 the way in which a number of these things were done. Like Sam Bowman, who used to work for them, for instance, was, was very critical. Um, so the Adam Smith Institute were... This is how bad it was that even the Adam Smith Institute at points were like, um, actually, this is not how to do this. Um, because it was just so sudden, so out of, so seemingly out of nowhere in the in the, the rapidness of which they made the announcements. And it was just like, no, we're doing this now and we're not kind of building in any time to do this. And then it took the markets by surprise. It took seemingly everybody by surprise. And then the markets reacted accordingly to a mass amount of borrowing to uh, fund uh, tax cuts, which basically they said the market said we don't believe this is going to deliver any growth, and you're just making unfunded tax cuts for the sake of it. Well, it, and that's the thing, isn't it? It's going to be a very grim winter, and economically a very grim couple of years. And you could potentially see a situation where the, the Conservatives were just able to blame Putin and Ukraine war and absolve themselves a lot over a lot of responsibility. There's no way they can do that now because of the mini-budget, and you can draw a clear blue line between that mini-budget and a lot of the chaos which and is happening. And I think that's one of the reasons why you've not really seen a Sunak bounce. You know, you've not seen the polls narrow, well, they've narrowed a small amount, but you've still got Labour running 20 to 25 points ahead in every poll, and I think that's because the one thing that the, the general public has kind of grasped out of all this is that the economy is in the toilets, and it's the Conservatives that put it there. And I don't think the general public is actually listening to the Conservatives anymore. And actually, I think it's the fact that Conservatives are squabbling between themselves, because in the summer, when the government... that Everyone knew the issues that were coming down the track in terms of the energy price hike that was going to happen, the cost of living crisis that was going to bite. And rather than put anything in place, instead what happens is the Tories just talk amongst themselves in a leadership contest... You have Boris Johnson there as a caretaker Prime Minister, but wasn't doing anything, and instead went on holiday. And I can't believe, and do close your ears, Jen, as a, a, an American listener, but even George W. Bush, so when you have the 2008 crash, and you've got George Bush is there as a lamed up Prime Minister, he's still trying to get TARP through Congress to make sure that essentially there is an American economy for either Barack Obama or John McCain to inhabit. Johnson isn't even doing that. They're not even bothering to try and put anything basic in place. There's no reason why Johnson and his administration could have just sat down Sunak and Truss in a room and said, right, we need to put something in place. We need to make sure you're both on board. We need to give some certainty for businesses. Nothing like that happened. And I think that abnegation of responsibility mm. is absolutely tragic. I think there's two parts to that. There's the complete abdication of responsibility of Boris Johnson. And I think also... And there's, there was no reason why Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak couldn't have taken the, the lead on that themselves um, and sat down together and said that something needs to be done and we'll put out a press statement to say both of us will implement this when we get in and put pressure on Johnson to do it. 
straight away, but for the phenomenal level of arrogance of Liz Truss and the, her I, belief that Treasury orthodoxy, which by definition was, was Rishi Sunak's patch, you know, was in the wrong on all things. I, I think there's, there's two themes here. One's about character and the other one's about ideology. And the point around character is I think we've just got a group of people who are fundamentally unserious Mm. about the roles that they've been elected to undertake and their approach to those serious questions that face the country. Um, And and you you see, I I would actually date this back as far as the the very shallow leadership of David Cameron, which I think, you know, is fundamentally the cause of many of the problems that we now face a, a decade or more on since he, he first took office. And then, you know, you see the, it, it's worst extreme with the kind of charlatan behaviour of Johnson, who clearly doesn't believe in anything other than the fact that he should have been in that top job and therefore would do anything in order to, to remain there. And then this, you know, kind of very shallow approach to serious political questions that the very brief trust leadership played out. It was almost like this this kind of Thatcherite tribute act on steroids that actually made no sense in its own uh, on its own merits, let alone any anything wider. So that there's an issue about character and the, the, the fundamental capability and seriousness of the people who are now in some very senior positions or have been until relatively recently. There's then a question around ideology, which is the the mutation of the Conservative Party from a relatively pragmatic centre right political party that, that uh, put winning and staying in power above everything else into one now that, that can't quite work out what it stands for and has spent actually the best part of three decades now chasing a kind of series of chimera. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 kind of the, the veneration of the free market above anything else, which was actually an abrogation from, from previous Conservative thought, um, then, you know, the, the, the fetishising of, of, of Europe and, and, and Brexit has been a thing. And again, you know, that's kind of fallen apart. Then we saw this kind of, let's say, crazed Thatcherite tribute act um, that, that was the brief trust leadership. And we've now got, you know, Sunak there, who hilariously is being portrayed as a moderate candidate in all this, when any other point in history would have been seen as a hardline Thatcherite, because mm. that's what he is. Mm. Um, and it's no wonder that, that the people this country more broadly are kind of looking at what's happened to the Conservative Party and going, whatever you are, you don't speak to what are the fundamental problems we face and you're not serious about addressing them. I think the other thing, I mean, I would also include Sunak in that character point of being not fundamentally particularly serious. I think he's, um, I mean, he's better than Johnson, but he, as you say, he's still a Thatcherite Tribute Act. He's still completely divorced from the reality of the world. I mean, whether that's from his wealth or what have you. Um, but I think the other, I would I would sort of excuse Theresa May from that company. I think she had a huge number of issues with her and, and, and her own character issues. But I think she did have at least a sense of seriousness and an appreciation of what the job was. But I think the other thing is that there is also a complete vacuum of leadership. So Johnson fundamentally did not provide that day-to-day leadership particularly. He, he was good at the big shiny stuff but he was not a details or a day-to-day man. And every time the going went tough, he disappeared off to Kiev to try and hide behind Zelensky. Um, over the summer, he completely disappeared. Liz Truss, when it all went to, to pot, disappeared from the airwaves, disappeared from public consciousness. Rishi Sunak is starting to get his face on a milk bottle because we haven't seen him in that long. 
Um, Which is ironic for somebody who, uh, up until this point, has just been putting vanity shots of himself constantly out there, signing yeah. checks with his name and face on it. Exactly. So, genuinely, I think since the Partygate stuff started to be... Since the, since the press conferences linked to the pandemic have stopped, there's just been a fundamental vacuum at the top of government. Um, and the public's not seen anything... You know, they've not seen anyone actually trying to provide leadership. It, so it's interesting with trust is you've got... It's out of the blue, isn't it? The book by Harry Cole and the other chap whose name escapes me for the moment. And I haven't read it. I'll almost certainly get it for, for Christmas, which would be a, a great thrill. But the reviews of it uh, are interesting in that they all basically say the same thing, which is they're trying to start out and do a reasonably sympathetic biography of trust, but they fail to do so essentially because she is such a fundamentally unsympathetic character and does seem quite arrogant and quite distant, happy to throw friends under the bus, doesn't seem to have a lot of close friends. And it's just someone who can who can rise in that way. And then to those... I think we did do a podcast about this, Steve, those radio interviews she did yeah. on the local radios, mm. which is just absolutely absurd, where any local councillor or cabinet member would have been ashamed at those interviews and, and you've got the Prime Minister there just unable to perform basic political tasks. Yeah when she said the, when she did her own patch and they asked her about the local hospital and she said she'd lobby the health minister and you're like you're the Prime Minister you don't need to lobby the Secretary of State for health you turn up in their office and say do this um, but I think she, she was the epitome of the fact that the Conservative Party has become a caricature of itself because Margaret Thatcher would never have done Thatcherism this way. You know, Margaret Thatcher, whatever else she was, was fundamentally a serious politician who understood what, how to run a country on the basic level of, you know, making sure the lights stay on. Um, whereas they've, they've each been trying to one-up each other on the principles of Thatcherism for like 30 years to the point where it's now completely divorced from its origins and a caricature of itself and Liz Truss was the ultimate expression of that caricature. Yeah, I mean, I think the the, the thing is that in relation to them not being serious kind of like uh, people, a big part of that is just because almost none of them really, in terms of anybody that's been running for the leadership, anybody that's won the leadership... Like, maybe you can say May's a bit of a, a break from this, but none of them actually have any ideas about really what they want to do. They're not in this for the sake of actually improving Britain. They become MPs because they want to be MPs, and, they've become, and they're running for, to be prime, prime Minister because they want to be Prime Minister full stop. There is no, and I want to do this, with that power. And I think that cuts across all, across all of them, including um, tr- trust to, 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 to a large extent. Um, because they're just much more... It's, it's just like a general arrogance about, um, we deserve to be in this position, we deserve to have this sort of authority and power. Because we know best, but they don't actually have any... Uh, actual ideas to go in there because they don't actually believe anything I slightly disagree about trust I think trust is I she's a member of the young Lib Dems at Oxford and so that implies to me she has an ideology the problem is that ideology is a sort of reheated Reaganism and it's this really fuzzy ideas of what personal liberty really means and how you encourage government growth 
and how that really means. And I think the, the difference, I think, between this iteration of the Tory party and Thatcherism, or one of the biggest things, as well as the sort of political capital element is, you at least got the sense that Margaret Thatcher knew who her people were and who her mm. voters were and the political coalition that she could get to get a majority through her economic reforms. Because obviously Thatcher's economic reforms really hurt a lot of communities, but actually were beneficial to a lot of other towns and cities here that saw spending increase, the right to buy, meaning you've got a new generation of homeowners. And you look at what the government is doing at the moment to try and build a political coalition. Well, actually, you can't really look at it. It doesn't really exist, does it? You've got young, even groups now are sort of forming of uh, young Conservatives, people like Ryan Shorthouse, who I think were sort of on the sort of Cameronite, sort of soft right wing of the Tory party, who acknowledge the fact that the Tory party is doing nothing to help younger voters. Um, the problem is their policy prescriptions appear to just be essentially to repudiate 12 years of Tory government. But you look at why people, why do people become conservative? And it's generally because, you know, they've got a house, they've got a family, they've got a job, they've got things to conserve. But you've got a whole generation of people where the Conservative Party are doing none of those things. Mm. And I think they've retreated. There's been a, a bit of a blind panic and a retreat into we're going to look after older, asset-rich voters in the South. What's the the offer to even those older voters in the places like Stoke or, you know, Red Wall seats that they took? They, they've kind of walked away from it. Um, which some of them may come back to the Labour Party. A lot of them, I think, will just stay at home and say that, you know, it doesn't make any difference. We've tried both major parties and neither of them's actually prepared to do anything to make our lives better which is um democratically a very dangerous situation mm. for the country to be in yeah a lot of broken promises and actually you look at um so dominic sandbrook just to take a random example of a sort of not quite a civil eye swivel-eyed commentator for the mail on sunday so he's by no means the the best example of this but you know, he's written columns recently about well actually we've got a toy government that's got high taxes which is still um this is his words not mine but you've got sort of public services encouraging wokery whatever that means you've got patricia hewitt being brought in by richie sunak to sort of advise on nhs matters isn't this just a le- what's the difference between this and the labor government and actually you mentioned in the previous podcast with this steve about peter crillis who was the former chair of the Tory party talking about this being a left-wing administration mm-hmm. yeah yeah there was a definite like they're, they're very much kind of going down the, the the path of the Republican Party in the U.S., where we, we're we're bringing in something radical that's actually not functioning. Oh, it must be because we're not doing it enough. We'll try something new. Oh, that's not working. We mm. must not be doing it enough. And you just end up kind of moving further and further and further to the extremes until you end up with QAnon. Like that's kind of where we're we're on the path towards. I think you're also seeing. I think this is also a symptom of the Conservatives being very spooked right now. Um, you know, the, the the things that they won on palpably have failed. Brexit deal that they got has palpably failed. Um, the control of immigration and, and the boats across the Channel has palpably failed, and they don't look like they have any kind of grip on it, and that creates a space to the right of them. I mean, you know, we are awaiting... 
with bated breath the return of Nigel Farage to lead the Reform Party, which is chugging along at about a percentage point behind the Lib Dems. And, you know, I do think that the Lib Dems might end up taking some seats in the South uh, West and other places where they've had historical strength, whereas those kind of Lib Dem Tory switchers decide that they are more comfortable with Keir Starmer than Rishi Sunak and, and vote Lib Dem. Um, but we could see some Reform UK pe- people elected, possibly, along the same lines. And I do think that that is making a lot of Conservatives very nervous because I think we would expect the polls to tighten between Labour and the Conservatives between now and the election when it moves to a choice rather than a referendum on the current government. But if you have a Reform UK right wing challenge to split that vote I mean that's when you get to the was it the 93 Canadian election mm. where the Conservatives mm. ended up down to two and I think if you've got something like Reform UK taking 10-11% of the vote predominantly from the Conservatives or at least from their 2019 voters that actually is, a, is an existential level threat at the moment I think fundamentally the, the, the problem is it's a the Conservative Party is a shrinking political party. And I don't just mean that in terms of it's losing seats at by-elections or, you know, as it hasn't got leads in opinion polls. But it's just speaking for a smaller and smaller slice of the British population. And you, you look at the actual... The, the membership of the party has shrunk massively and is completely out of kilter with the demographic of, 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 of modern Britain. And therefore, I think it's particularly there prone to these kind of ideological fads and the kind of sloganeering approach to politics you know the the the, the big state bad small state good let's wage war on wokery whatever it is and, and a more broadly based political party is more immune to that and that that is the problem they've now got and i'm not clear how they start to rebuild the kind of successful every, clearly center right but but more broadly based coalition that any party needs in order to be able to, 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 to win, a, win a majority? I think that uh, a lot of the people in power in the Conservative Party at present have forgotten the basic rule of politics, learn how to count. Mm-hmm. Um, they have completely miscalculated um, their own base. And you, when you get a voice of reason within the Conservative Party, it seems to be from the people that are lower level, the people that are in local government or the backbenchers who are then the ones that are trying to speak up for what would be true conservatism, and they're the only ones that seem to be aware of what John was just saying about their lack of base, whereas the people that are actually calling the shots and running the show seem to be oblivious. I think there's another thing here which is about party management on this point about knowing how to count and those those smaller groups that are speaking up. He's got a majority now of, I think, 75 or somewhere between 70 and 80. And it only takes 35 Tory MPs to rebel to force a change. We saw that on planning permission. We saw it on wind farms. Um, we've seen it on various other things and we're likely to see it again because even though he's got this majority, it's actually... A very fragmented party. And I think one of the underestimated impacts of the pandemic on politics has been to shatter the whipping operation because it's very difficult to whip people via WhatsApp. And I think there is a large number of Conservative MPs now because a lot of them, not just in the seats they won, but in the seats where, you know, moderate um, candidates were either defenestrated or saw the writing on the wall and left. But there's a large number of them who have never actually experienced the traditional whipping operation, the traditional 
uh, kind of things you would do to call your party together and you know have lunch together in the tea rooms and things like this because of the pandemic and I think it's just that has contributed massively to the fact that the Conservative Party despite its massive majority is fundamentally ungovernable. Yeah, I mean, I think when you kind of go back to Jenny's point about kind of like counting the numbers and and, and everything, especially in regards to the, like their base, like that, that's kind of where the, the kind of the core flaw in, in, in their approach is, especially kind of joining it up with, with John's point there about, um, you know, who are they actually governing for? They're, they're missing a lot. They're just kind of focused on one very small section. You now have like... Uh, organisations within the Conservative Party who are now focused on you know what, let's actually do something for young people. That's their entire kind of raison d'etre as organisations saying we need to do something about housing costs we need to do something about the environment, all of these different things which are like shouldn't be controversial should just be, you know, common common sense things to focus on if you are a serious party of government but they're having to actually lobby for these things and that fundamentally, in terms of them being a shrinking party, that's the core thing, is that there is a gener- there's generations, multiple now, of millennials, who, for significant numbers of which are probably never going to vote Conservative because the Conservatives have just screwed over an awful lot of life chances for, for them, and Gen Z, who are not going to vote Conservative because they're focused on wokery, and the Gen Z types are the ones that are more likely to be woke, quote-unquote. On, this, on, on like liberal issues and so you have them just basically sticking their fingers up to the two kind of like youngest generations that are capable of voting and the only like more and more of them are going to get active more and more of them are going to end up voting and engaging with the political process and more and more of their voter base is not going to be there in the set in the future because it is an aging demographic and those millennials now are mid to late 30s yeah you know i mean they are the tax base, they are the, the employment uh, base, and the, increasingly, as, as the baby boomer generation you know, starts to shrink as, as people die, um, increasingly a share of the electorate. Well, and demographically, as people move out from inner cities and bigger cities into Other areas, towns and the yeah. countryside, the community yeah. about, you were mentioning this in the previous podcast, Eve about Wickham, that, that accelerates a lot of that as well. Yeah. I think the Tory party is going to become more and more ungovernable, to come back to your point, Algie, about the whipping problem. So going back to the leadership elections and sort of seeing how the different groups of MPs were coalescing, there's a sort of a block around Sunak which likes to talk of itself as being quite moderate but actually still quite Mm. pretty right-wing and thatch right of about 120, 130 MPs for about a third of the parliamentary party. You've got a similar number backed trusts who are obviously even sort of more economically more radical than that, quite a neoliberal ring. A big block of that a big a big block a big block of that one thirty are the sort of Nadine Dorries, Jacob Rees Mogg, ex Johnson sort of Spartans. And future Johnson possibly. And future Johnson. No, but let's not even We haven't no. drunk enough wine to contemplate a third <laughs> Boris Johnson comeback LJ. But but point taken. You've then got another block which sort of back Penny Morden, who again are a sort of different, would like to see themselves as more centrist, but again are still right wing. Then you've got the sort of Kevy Badnock, Suella Braverman bit as well, the sort of extreme right of the party. And it's, and as you say, LJ, you, you, essentially you've got a kind of five or six legged chair, and you need all five or six of those legs to pass any government policy because as 
Theresa Villiers has shown, as um, well, actually, Liz Truss and Boris Johnson have shown with a sort of stand on onshore wind. It's very easy to get 20, 30, 40 signatures to an amendment, at which point the government can't pass it. Yeah. You look that around Tom Tugendhat. I mean, if you want to sort of more genuinely centrist, moderate bit of the Conservative Party. But I do think, just, just continuing on this ungovernable theme, actually, one of the things we're finding is we are going to enter into an age where that becomes more common and where the the MPs will become more independent-minded than they were previously. I think the new Labour gov- way of governing and that very strict media control is no longer possible. And I think there's two reasons for that. One is what we're seeing around Dominic Raab coming now, which is that the culture has changed and people are no longer tolerant of that kind of bullying, you know, grab them while they're crying and throw them through the lobbies as they did to try and save this trust approach. People are just not prepared to accept that anymore, even in the Conservative benches. Um, and the other is the advent of social media. You know, the way that the New Labour controlled people was to say, you will get no airtime, you will get no access to the media, your career will just disappear unless you toe the line, when they controlled access between the MP and the electorate. And now MPs regularly speak to the general public on their own terms through social media channels. Um, And if they want to quote in a newspaper article, they just put it out as a tweet because journalists love Twitter because it's the perfect length to copy and paste into an article. Um, Not until until there's 3,000 character limit. Well, yeah. But, you know, so... But, you know, your your sort of usual suspects, if you like, your Richard Bergen and, and Diane Abbott and so on, can't, you know, the, the the spat between Diane Abbott and West Streeting that happened over the weekend over the NHS could not have happened as easily in the pre-social media age because she would have struggled to get into the media. Well, it would have happened, presumably, behind the scenes of the PLP meeting and probably no one would have leaked it to the press, let alone made yeah. a statement about it. Yeah. Whereas she was able to just put that out on Twitter and, you know, turn, turn it into a Twitter sort of storm in a teacup or, you know, a row that then gets into the media. Um, so I think MPs have the ability to assert their independence in a way that they haven't in probably decades, probably since the television age. I think that's a really interesting point. I think also the, the Conservative Party under Cameron did get a taste for rebellion as well. So I think it was um, Jacob Rees-Mogg was sort of talking about how it wasn't you know, good, it wasn't good for uh, people to start rebelling against Sunak and they had to, to show loyalty. And I remember him as being one of the quite prominent Johnson rebels, so I had a quick look at his voting record. So in the Cam- Cameron government, and obviously Rees-Mogg was on the back benches and part of the, uh, the constant rebels, so he rebelled about 15% of the time. Um, which I suppose doesn't sound like a lot, but actually when you've got a government with a majority of 80 that then can't get stuff through, that does, I think, become quite significant. And I think it's really only got worse since then. Yeah. yeah. Um, and actually, in terms of that ungovernability and in terms of that unseriousness, I think you do see that with their approach to the unions and with the strikes at the moment, where you have a bunch of public sector workers whose pay has been declining, who've had a horrible, horrific period in the pandemic, and they're trying to get a decent pay, day's pay for a decent day's work. And the government seemed to think that all they need, that they, they seem to be embracing it as a stick to beat the Labour Party with and almost almost embracing the chaos. 
it's a bit like if kind of Jim Callahan during the winter of discontent like turned to Bernard Donahue and Joe Haynes and said, "Well, this is great, guys, isn't it? We can beat that." Woke well, it's, it's part Margaret of their, Thatcher. This well, is, is a it. great weapon for us. <laughs> but this now. is it. It's part of the Thatcherite uh, caricature. It's oh, thank God, we can pick a fight with the unions. That's what won Margaret Thatcher the election in '83, and there's a war on as well. That's exactly the same thing. It's it's they are trying to rerun that playbook, but in a narrower, narrower, and more extreme version every time. And if it fits into that story, it gets incorporated, and they are. You know, the history repeats first as tragedy, then as farce, and I think we're at the farce stage. I think that also rebellion as a concept fits in a different place in the British psyche, and that has changed in recent years, so that when you see the strikes happening and people walking out, you're getting a lot more support from the public, but at the same time, when you look at the voting records of MPs and you see people rebelling, whereas at one time, the people that followed politics would have almost look down on somebody breaking the whip. Now it's almost considered admirable. Mm. And that shift really is indicative of a wider change. I think it's also part of brand building because politicians now have the opportunity to build their own brand separate from the party they represent. Boris Johnson did it on different ways and different levels. Someone like Jess Phillips does it, you know. Um, Jess goes on, have I got news for you, because she is Jess Phillips, not because she is a <coughs> member of the Labour Party or a Labour MP. It's she's got that separate brand, and I think that so the rise of social media has enabled that, and that allows you to uh, build a kind of separate political capital, which you can then spend on the things that matter to you. Um, and in that sense, actually rebelling helps build the brand, because it gets you noticed and it gets your, you know, it, it's a way of signalling these are my ideological priorities or these are my personal priorities um, and what I'm not prepared to cross the line for and it helps to bur to build and burnish that brand. I will not tell Jess that you compared it to Boris Johnson on the podcast. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think it's true that people do like independence and they like that, you know, people who speak out and who, who, who strike a... a alternative or independent line but I also think that, that people really do see when that tips over into anarchy and chaos particularly when they're looking at their mortgage rates going through the roof yeah. when they're looking at the fact that you know like many many people across this country that they're, they're taking that decision can I afford to switch the heating on this evening um, you know so, so their appetite for a, a, a bunch of political mavericks I think is actually quite limited we, we like a little bit of this but actually they also want competent effective government yeah. that's pursuing the, the objectives that they think matter, matter to them yeah. um, and, and this I think is why the Tory party has now got a huge problem because they do not see it as that force they now see it entirely as a kind of collection of maverick sloganeering characters who are more interested in their own little obsessions than they are in the things that matter yeah. to, to, to ordinary families up and down the country. Yeah, one maverick is great, 350 yeah. off. I would agree with that, but I would also say that one of the things about rebellion that people, when people admire it, they also want to know why. Um, mm. And the brand building, brand building is about defending a position. So one word that I think I have heard almost everybody in this room utter at some point during this podcast is arrogance. And... When your rebellion is because of arrogance, then that's not yeah. going to be turning anybody's yeah. heads. What people want to see is a rebellion because of a sense of duty. And that is mm -hmm. not a word that I've heard at all this evening. 
in terms of the what, what you're saying, John, about that sort of economic stability, well, about people not being able to afford to put the easy on. So Steve and I, I think, did a podcast earlier this year tr- that was looking at some research on the different makeups of Labour voters, Conservative voters, and essentially how parties could try and use culture war issues and issues of wokery and all that nonsense to sort of drive a, a wedge there. And the conclusion they came up with was that Conservative voters tended to come from more economically stable backgrounds. So they tend to be you leave voters in the South who actually own their own houses and are happy with a no-deal Brexit. I didn't think it would uh, affect much. Or even sort of the Red Wall voters, it tends to be those people who have bought Barrett homes. And actually, when you have a situation where the, their economic mismanagement means people are not sure if they can put the heating on or the shopping cost is going through the roof, then actually, yeah, as you say, that arrogance, Jeff, it really does hit home because actually no one cares. No one cares about what Swilla Braverman says about bathrooms, really, or what's happening at universities when people can't afford to eat and people can't mm. afford to heat and when you can trace that directly back to the government. Does anyone think then, uh, let's, let's, let's do Munger, our, our beloved comrade Bridget isn't here to sort of cast any gloom on proceedings and obviously my habitual optimism precludes me from casting the first stone on this who can plot who what's the way back for the uh for the, for the conservatives you have a hood put of your head and then you end up two hours later in downing street and rishi sunak looks at you and goes tell me what i need to do next year to win the next election. I don't think they can. You can't. You can't. I don't think what, you can read the, read what the next election. What kind of advisors are you? What, what, I, would, what <laughs> I would say is that they, they, they do have a certain number of inbuilt advantages. The boundary review is um, slightly favourable to them. I think it gives them nominally another five to ten seats, depending on how the, the final uh, edits play out. Um, the big thing that would possibly save the Conservatives, excuse me, is Scotland. And is, you know, the original Red Wall. You know, if we can't take back seats in Scotland, that, you know, 30 to 40 seat bank that we used to bank every election, actually it's much more difficult to get within striking distance of a majority of even one. And I think we have to take out Jacob Rees-Mogg without winning back any seats in Scotland. Mm. So I think the, the, the route to Rishi Sunak's promised survivorship, if you like, is for the SNP to remain strong north of the border. Well, not sure how the Conservative government could possibly manage that. Um, <laughs> I suppose as the, the wizened elder statesman of this, this podcast who first got involved in politics in the early 90s and is forever kind of um, scarred by the experience of the 1992 election. No. We're not going to get Keir to hold a rally in Sheffield. No, no, no. no. We're going to be all right. We're all right. Um, <laughs> but but the, 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 the real fear that, you know, that always always scars me is the, the never underestimate the, the, the Tories' sheer appetite for power and their willingness to do whatever they think it takes to win an election. And we've actually seen, you know, not wanted to unravel or revisit anything we've talked about earlier on, but their ability to move sort of gannet-like from platform to platform and just put together things that they think are electorally advantageous for them. Never underestimate their capacity to do that. I think, on balance, they have exhausted that road, but I, I you know, let's... 
it, it for, for Labour, it's now a matter of just staying absolutely on course, being really disciplined about the policy offer that we're making to, to, to the public and just getting out there and putting that message across on doorsteps across the nation. That's the only way that we can get there to win. There you go. That, that's a, a rallying cry, I think. Um, I, I, feel, I feel you're right, John. I think that the, it feels like the Conservatives have sort of lost their aura a little bit. It's a bit like the Australian cricket team in 2009 when it didn't feel we could beat them because they were still Australia, but then you realise they were actually quite rubbish. Um, I think it is back to the point that the public aren't listening anymore. I, I think they've reinvented themselves multiple times and one of the reasons Johnson was so successful was nobody thought that Boris Johnson's Conservative Party was the same party as David Cameron's Conservative Party. But I think now their ability mm. to reinvent themselves... I mean, don't forget, the guy in my dining street now also got fined for breaking the law over COVID rec- re- regulations. You know, he was absolutely a part of the, uh, the Johnson government. Um, and the public is just not listening to them anymore. So they can rebrand as much as they like. Nobody's paying any attention. Mm, every, every battle plan you know, succeeds up to the point where you're ambushed by cake. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to hear us reinvent ourselves in the new year... You could support us on Patreon, couldn't you, Steve? You could indeed. You can head over to patreon.com slash notenoughchampagne. But you can fling us a few quid every month. All the costs go to keeping the podcast running. Uh, and uh, if you do do that, you will find yourselves uh, in receipt of some uh, unique episodes, early episodes, and a few other bits and pieces. We're next going to record the quiz. So I might have to go and drink some wine. In the meantime, our website is notenoughchampagne.com. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash notenoughchampagne. James Cram, designed the logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram. And Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Lucky Good Times. I'm on Twitter at PaperMattRioter. I'm on Twitter at Councillor John Cotton. Uh, at LJD Labour. Uh, at Acoustic Radical. <laughs> I genuinely can't remember my own Twitter. That, that's not how you build a brand. <laughs> 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 at Jen underscore Hemingway. Happy plotting. thing is that we have a situation where I've completely forgotten the point I was about to make. <laughs> um, I had a point then right. mm. and I've forgotten what it was. Mm. That's the outcut. That's <laughs> in many ways a perfect metaphor for Boris Johnson. Yeah. No, uh, 